Patrick's fault, of course. It was just I didn't get it done in time this week. I wanted to spend today, I'm, I'm working on developing a number of series that will kind of guide us uh, through the, uh, the spring and on into the summer, but uh, these first few Sundays, uh, just as I get settled in, are going to be standalones. And I wanted to take today uh, to address uh, a subject matter that gets a lot of play this time of year, the subject of love. Uh, you know, our culture uh, gets uh, pretty amped up uh, about the idea of love around Valentine's Day. It's the, one of the busiest seasons uh, of the shipping year, uh, besides Mother's Day and, and then right behind Christmas. It's the one occasion when florists can uh, dramatically overprice roses, and they can even sell ragweed if the price is right. Um, uh, there's uh, chocolate uh, trades this week, uh, somewhere between gold and silver on the New York Stock Exchange. Entire forests have to be leveled in order to provide paper stock uh, for Hallmark to write the cards. And I don't know, you might be the kind of person who uh, doesn't get sucked into uh, made, for Mad- made by Madison Avenue holiday like Valentine's Day. We pretty much in my household look for any occasion to celebrate our love. I mean, did I mention chocolate? Yeah, it's, a, it's a positive thing. So anytime you can do that, like slip some chocolate in, your wife doesn't you know, call you on the carpet for it, uh, then it's a good celebration. But uh, I don't want to talk about the love uh, that we know horizontally. I want, I want to spend our time this morning focused on uh, a love by another name, a love that comes from God. I want to talk to you about uh, a love that's greater than the unlovely. And First John chapter 4 is where uh, I'll read a few verses from in just a moment. But I'm going to start by summarizing uh, in as simple a way I can, a simple, straightforward point for my message today so that you don't miss it. And yet... Uh, it is so mysteriously profound that it bears repetition because the truth is, while you will be doubtless familiar with my point this morning, uh, there's often a gap between what we know about God's love and what we experience. So the point of my message is simply this, God loves you. God loves you. Now, again, this idea is quite familiar with us, to us. We've heard it in a dozen messages. We, we see it on bumper stickers. We've said it to people. And to some degree, we believe it when we hear it. God loves me. And yet, it's not rooted deeply enough in us that it has addressed every need we have. It hasn't uh, fixed everything that's broken Uh, It hasn't uh, taken away every insecurity. It hasn't removed every sense of self-identity. And this is the goal of God's love for us. It matters very much how we inflect that phrase and where we put the punctuation marks. And we have experience with that too because many of us have, have, have repeated that phrase over and over, but it always comes out in the form of the question, God loves me? Like it's not, it's too good to be true that God could love me. Others of us have been on the receiving end of that phrase when it's uh, punctuated with an exclamation mark like, God love you, you're an idiot. God God love you, you can't help yourself. Um, But God loves you this morning. 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 through 12, again, this almost this entire chapter speaks to this idea, but I want to start with these verses. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His Son into the world, His only Son, into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. 
Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation, the removal for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Now, my aim this morning is to repeat something that's quite familiar to you, but hopefully to take it a little further than perhaps some of us are living, because God's love is not just a Hallmark greeting card to us. The Bible is not just a letter from God saying, hey, while I'm away, you know, while you're down there, just remember I love you. There's something about God's love that we do not relate to in our world because God's love is transformative. It is intended to affect every part of who we are. And not just who we are, it's intended to affect every relationship we have. So it is true that while a couple can be married and not have a relationship with God and perhaps have a marriage that would be fulfilling over the course of their lives, a marriage will never arrive at its highest intent until the love of God saturates husband and wife. A church can can, uh, banter back and forth about the love of God and we can put it on writing and we can refer to it. It can be preached about, but a church will never be all that God intended it to be until the love of God has um, immersed our experience and how we approach one another is impacted by the love of God. The issues that we deal with, the, 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 the things that we walk through are intended to be impacted by the love of God. So let me begin by uh, offering to you uh, some of the evidence that suggests scripturally that God loves you. Uh, John said God is love. And there's a number of verses that we could look at all throughout scripture. Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 through 7 says God's steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love is the Hebrew word hased. Uh, I have a seminary professor who said it's the most beautiful word in all of scripture. It means loyal reliability. This is God's posture toward you. Oh, he has issues with you. He has issues with my sin. But God's posture toward us from eternity past is said, loyal reliability. He never stops loving you. The Bible says God loves you. Psalm chapter 139, verses 13 through 18 talks about how our very existence is a reflection of, of a God of love, that we were uh, fearfully and wonderfully made. They needed us together uh, in our mother's womb, meticulously so. It was a It was a work of love. God loves you. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that creation is a gift to mankind, that that we were meant for relationship, and not just relationship, we were meant for a love relationship. And then on display at almost every football game in the end zone, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everything that comes our way from a good God is motivated by his love for us. But here, here's the problem. The problem is, is that most of us come to this subject matter with a boatload of thoughts, emotions, and relational experiences that make the idea of love, right or wrong, hard to understand the idea of God's love. First of all, uh, at best, we tend to have an incomplete understanding of what love really is. We tend to think of love as an emotion that we can fall in it and we can fall out of it, but this is not, this is not defined the love of God. The love of God is constant. It is unchanging. It is, it is a matter of His character. And even though we are shaped to experience it, even though we might, be, we might grow up in the best of environments, we are ill-equipped to understand deeply this subject, the love of God. At worst, because some of us don't come from great environments, we can have a skewed and distorted view of God's love. Because in our world, 
Love is often doled out based on effort and merit, accomplishment. For many of us, love is a weapon. We give love when we get what we want. For others, love is a form of currency, and we just come to think of it in that way. And we transfer that erroneous thinking to God. But this is not an understanding, an accurate understanding of God's love. Many of us us wind up playing a vicious cycle of an adult version of the childhood game, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Did you ever play that? Ladies, you played that, right? He loves me, he loves me not. Hoping against all hope that the last pedal was he loves me. But all too often, it just feels this way. The last pedal is he loves me not. And that's, we have that skewed idea about God's love because we were shaped by environments that do not reflect accurately who God is. Now, it is certainly true that by grace through faith, we can know enough about God's love, childlike faith. We can know enough about God's love to be redeemed, uh, as many, as have, many of us have done. And yet, it is also possible that uh, we can fail to enter into, in every way, all that God intends to do in us and through us when he loves us. So the second thing I want to do is basically explain God's love. What does it mean for for us to say that God loves us? And and what is God's love prior to us becoming the object of it? This is the goal of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God's desire is that every insecurity in you, uh, every sense of inferiority, uh, every false sense of identity that you often live to try to satisfy, that all of that would be filled up with the love of God, that you might experience the fullness of God. And that comes to us by love. This is the aim of John's question in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, What manner of love is this that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be sons and daughters of God? And that is what we are. And yet so many of us live beneath the level of our inheritance. So many of us live as estranged sons and daughters because we don't fully understand. We've not fully embraced or been absorbed by the love of God. He loves me. Say that with me. He loves me. Come on, seriously? Let's try it again. He loves me. Again, He loves me. God loves you. God loves you. God's love is not an either or, but a both and proposition. God doesn't love you because. God doesn't love you if. It's, it's, not an, it's not an either or, it's a both and. God loves you and He wants to do good in your life. And that begins with redeeming us from our sin. There are three words in uh, the, the Greek language that uh, connote the idea of love. They're eros, uh, phileo, and agape. Uh, these concepts each convey a different aspect of love. And agape, as you know, is the highest form of love. Uh, It's the love that we think of when we speak of God. And yet one of the errors that we make when we think about God, about God's love, is that we we narrow it to our understanding of love, which is oftentimes reciprocal. 
This contributes to a second error that we make. And that is to think that when we look at the Bible, that God's love is changing from the Old Testament to the New. That it's growing, kind of like in our relationships. Like when Gail and I met, we were in high school and we, we were in what you might call puppy love. It was, you know, we didn't know a whole lot about it. But over the years, 31 years later, love has deepened. We think of it differently now. It's, it's, it's richer. It's more meaningful. It's, uh, that's the nature of love, and yet that is not who God is. God's love has not been growing all along. It has always been the same. So when God says, I love you, he's making a statement that has been echoing and reverberating since eternity past. He loves you. He loves the whole thought of you. You were his idea. He hasn't turned away. It has, his love hasn't waned. It hasn't diminished simply because you continue to struggle with that same issue over and over. He hasn't pulled his love away from you because you continue to want to, want to try to identify yourself by something less than I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you haven't been filled up with his love. You still remain insecure uh, and you need people's approval or you live in fear of what people think of you. All of these things that we struggle with are intended to be filled up and removed by the love of God. A third reason why I think we struggle to understand uh, an explanation of God's love is because we, understand, we misunderstand the difference biblically between the love-hate idea. The Bible says, uh, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And we think to ourselves, that kind of seems unjust. I mean, you know, just because Esau had hairy arms and he was a hunter... But we misunderstand that, that in the Hebrew concept, there is no idea for hate. That the love-hate idea that when, when Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That what the Bible is doing is setting up the stark contrast that simply says, until we are consumed by the love of God, that by comparison, it looks like everything else in our life is a relationship of hate. Not that we hate. I love my parents. My parents live on my street. Three houses down. My mom's not happy with me. I love my parents, but I love God more. And when Christ made it clear to Gail and I that we were to be here, that this was our family, we were willing to go. I don't hate my kids, but I was willing to leave them in Texas because I was supposed to be here. Uh, The idea of love-hate needs to be understood rightly or we will not understand God's love at all. So let me define God's love. The most basic understanding of God's love is that love is giving of oneself, in this case God, for the benefit of others. Love is the giving of oneself for the benefit of others. And this should create a pivot in our minds because while we are willing to love some in our lives, like I would give my life for my wife, I would give my wife my life for my kids. You could say the same thing about some that are really close to you. There's a point at which, as the, the circle gro- grows larger, that you would say, mm, I don't know, I love you, but I'll just come to your funeral. <laughs> I'll send flowers. You see, this is a, an important pivot for us to understand that when God says he loves us, it, it, it requires action. It would have done no good for us for Jesus to say from heaven, I love you. It would be true. I love you. Good job. Good luck. Do well. Do the best you can. No, I love you. And then it was followed by action. Leaving his rightful place at the right hand of the father. Risking himself as a child to uh, an adolescent mother. And then after 33 years, enduring the most cruel 
act that has ever been perpetrated on a man. Not too long ago, I was witnessing to a guy at work who doesn't know the Lord, and I was talking to him about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and he said, I can find you on the internet, people who have endured far worse than a crucifixion. And I said, well, then you don't understand what was going on. Because the physical torment was not the worst that Jesus paid for you. What the worst that Jesus paid for you was to have your sin and my sin and everyone else besides you weighted upon his shoulders. And then to have the Father turn his back on him. When Jesus says he loves you, he backs it up with action. Uh, Love is giving oneself for the benefit of others. And the extent to which God loves us is different from how we love one another. Now again, God's love is intended to be transformative. It should affect our marriage. It should affect our relationship with our kids. It it has to affect the church if we are to be all that God has called us to be. But until we have been immersed in the love of God, until our experience, our identity becomes God's love, then we will struggle to pull ourselves out of our fleshliness, our humanness. God's love means that God is giving himself to us. Further, uh, it is the truest nature of his love to seek our good. We all grew up hearing uh, stories uh, we called uh, fairy tales, and all good fairy tales start with the phrase, once upon a time. The Bible says that twice. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me ask you a question. Was that the beginning? No, it was our beginning. You see, God existed before the beginning. Before the fairy tale starts, God already was. And then in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. You see, the fairy tale starts in eternity past. So while it might be news to us that God loves us, the truth is he's been loving the idea of us since before he spoke us into existence. Before anything existed, he was. And so love is something that God is not only, not only who God is, but it's something that he is giving himself to for our benefit, to do good for us. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 reminds us that, that we have to see God not just as the author of the story, but as the most important character in the story. Like as long as you're the, the most important story, a character in your story, then you fail to grasp the love of God. You fail to grasp this idea of being created for His glory, and this is what God's love is intended to produce in us. And it is, uh, it is quantitative. God's love is selfless eternally. This is how God is different from us. John chapter 3, verse 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Again, John chapter 14, verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. What kind of love when we say God loves us? Well, the quality of God's love is that God's love is by nature always good. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says, Perfect love casts out fear. In us, love is an emotion. But with God, it's an attribute. It's an attribute that he possesses in perfection. And the good news is, is that he wants to shed it abroad in our hearts. 
And it is the outworking of God's love from the inside out that not only heals us and binds up our brokenness and helps us walk uprightly and whole, but it affects potentially every relationship that we have. So that when we rub each other wrong, I call them sandpaper people, you know who you are. When we rub each other wrong, the Holy Spirit can like convict us and the love of God bubbles up inside of us and we remember there but by the grace of God go I. That I'm a sandpaper, sandpaper person too. I rub some of you the wrong way or at least in time I will. But it is the love of God. It's the love of God that compels us. That has to become our experience. It cannot simply be a platitude, something we say, something we think. It has to be something we believe and live. Now, the truth is, part of our wrestling with God's love, oftentimes people will say, why does God let good things happen to bad people? Have you ever shared your faith and someone raises that question? If God is so good, if God is so loving, well, when we struggle with that question, as we often do, all of us probably prone to struggle with that idea at some point in our lives, we we fail to recognize that God's love was betrayed long before we ever got here. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14 tell us of the highest created angel, Lucifer, is so powerful, so beautiful, that even the archangel Michael would not argue with Lucifer over the body of Moses. That should be instructive to us. Our, our power is rooted in Jesus Christ. We needn't stray from our source of authority. But he was so great, and yet his heart was filled with pride that he felt like God was holding out on him. And so he led uh, a number of the angels in rebellion against God, and sin entered God's creation. You see, God's love was betrayed long before you and I ever got here. John Eldridge in his book, uh, The Sacred Romance, writes... Though it seems almost incomprehensible, he, that is Lucifer, deceived a multitude of the heavenly host by sowing the seed of doubt in their minds that God was somehow holding out on them. After the resurrection is squelched, the question lingers in them, in the air, uh, like a smoke from a forest fire. Sure, God won, but it took force to do it. Power isn't the same thing as goodness. You see, God's love or goodness has been on trial since the outset of creation. And the reason why some of us struggle to embrace the love of God and allow it to saturate our lives and transform who we are and all of our relationships is because we're still asking this fundamental question that comes from the garden. Is God really good? Is he really good? Ephesians chapter 1 says that God has been good. He has intended good for us. He's been loving us since before the foundation of creation. Philip Yancey says, perhaps uh, God's slowness to act in the face of injustice in our world, perhaps his slowness to act explains why God sometimes seems shy to use his power. Because God could force himself on us, but that's not what he wants. He wants to love us, and in return, he wants us to learn to love him back. So when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, the great commandment, Love the Lord your God when asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what else? Love your neighbor as yourself. Is there room for improvement in your life on loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? Surely I'm not the only one that struggles with wanting to love my neighbor better. 
The truth is we will never fulfill that commandment until it is the love of God flowing through us, until it is God's love bouncing off of us to love Him back the way He loves us, until we are loving other people the way that God loves them. Only God's love can make that happen. Romans chapter 5 Verse 8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, part of the problem that we have in love relationships in the church with other people is that oftentimes there's a reciprocal idea that we have this idea in mind that others uh, should do for us to deserve our love. But God demonstrates his love for us in sacrifice and service. You see, the great thing about God's love is that though we are incapable of understanding His love, our great God and King clothes Himself and becomes a beggar and renounces His throne just to win our hearts. And it's not just to redeem you for eternity. It's to change the way you live now. We don't have to look just to the incarnation to see that God's the lead character of the story. We don't have to look to to His birth to understand the character of of His love. But this makes it abundantly clear. And this is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me, who loved me and gave himself for me. This ought to be the motivation for why we do what we do. This ought to be what compels us to speak both truth and grace to other people, to love. Because God loved us and gave himself for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the removal of our sin. Jesus is, jo- Jesus is both the sacrificial lamb and also the scapegoat. If you remember your Old Testament, then you know there were two lambs that would, would be in play on the Day of Atonement. One would be the sacrificial lamb, and the priest would lay on that lamb the sins of the people, and then they would slaughter that lamb on the altar. The other would be the scapegoat. It's propitiation, removal, uh, and expiation. And the, the scapegoat would, in the same way, would pray the sins over and then they would turn him out into the wilderness. Jesus is both of these things for us. He has removed our sin. And he's removed it so far, the scripture says that the Father doesn't see our wrong anymore. This is how much God loves us. <clears throat> this leads me to the effect. And this is really what I hope to drive home this morning. The effect of God's love is that as we grow in our experience of God's love, it will, please hear me, it will unavoidably, necessarily, radically affect our lives and our relationships. Your identity as a child of God is love, God's love. This is what is to compel you. Your identity is not rooted in the family you come from. Your identity is not not that you were born and raised in a household of alcoholics. Your identity isn't sexual abuse. Your identity isn't a broken marriage. If you have turned your life over to Jesus Christ and He has redeemed you, the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart and this is who you are. The beloved of God. And until you and I allow that to sink deeply inside of us, then we will live with insecurity. We will live with a false sense of identity that keeps us from ever being vulnerable. See, if the love of God isn't your identity, then most of us have a, um, a functional way to try to feel validated because all of us want to be validated. All of us want to feel like our life matters. And so we'll live in such a way, we'll attach ourselves to something, a role, um, a reputation, and then we'll kill ourselves trying to, to masquerade so that people will continue to say, for me, like, I trusted Christ when I was nine. 
And I knew that my, I knew that God saved me. Uh, I knew that my dad loved me, but my dad was not a, he didn't emote. So I never heard those words, I love you. What I did hear from my dad was, I'm proud of you. You know when I heard that? Proud of you, boy. I heard those words when I was working hard. Built a house with my dad in Utah as a teenager. Would hear those words, proud of you, boy. You know what I did with those words? Transferred it to God. God loves me. He's proud of me when I'm working hard. And when I wasn't working hard or when I stumbled and fell again, the same sin struggle over, I thought to myself, God doesn't love me. But the extent of God's love goes beyond my inadequacy. It goes beyond my inferiority. It goes beyond any sense of false identity. God's love in Christ Jesus has become our identity. So in God's economy, there is no He loves me not. God loves you. Now, God loves you, but it is not to the neglect of his other attributes. He is just and he is holy. This is important because universalism would have us believe that God is love and that in the end, because he's a big old teddy bear, he's just going to overlook. No, God has issues with you. He loves you enough not to leave you where you are. He wants you to change. He doesn't like the way you treat your kids. He doesn't like the way you speak to your spouse. He doesn't like that you don't give your dead-level best to your employer. All these things matter to God. Why? Because God loves us, and He intends to give Himself for our good, our benefit. So as we embrace the love of God, God's love transforms our heart. It changes who we are, not just in marriage, not in family, and with our employer, but especially in the church. What does it look like to embrace God's love more fully? 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says, we are to abide in God's love. That means it's not an option. If you want your marriage to be better, don't just buy flowers or chocolates or a card. If you want your marriage to be better, give yourself more fully to God. Give yourself more fully, husbands, to Jesus Christ. He knows what it means to love a bride. He can show you how. If you want to be a better father, give yourself more fully to the father. Let the father's love transform who you are and then it will accrue to the blessing and benefit of everyone in your household. Do that for your employer and God will use you where you work. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of the lost in our community, let us do that among one another as a church. Let us give ourselves fully to God to let his love define who we are. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples. Because you're really smart. You know everything in here. You're a good apologist. You can argue with the best of them. No, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. To abide means to accept, to stay, to live, to remain. Embracing God's love means drawing my identity from the fact that He loves me and has made me His beloved. It means entering into that as my experience, shaking off every other false sense of identity. My identity is rooted in Christ because God loves me and God loves you. you bow your head with me? I'd suggest uh, by way of application this morning that perhaps uh, you need to 
repent. That you need to repent to the Lord. That if you were honest with yourself, that when you look in the mirror, you know there are other things that, that you derive your sense of worth from. You don't like it, you hate it, but it's, it's true, it's your default setting. You need to please people, or you need things to be just so. And this says something to you about who you are, about your worth, when the truth is you're supposed to be defined by this, God loves me. Some of you simply need to ask God to flood your life with a deeper understanding and experience of His love. Some of you just need to believe it, that God could love you in spite of your sin. The truth is, He loves all of us in spite of our sin. And all He asks is that we would look to His Son, Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, that He might liberate us from our sin and adopt us as His sons and daughters. And then maybe you're all squared away on the love of God And you just need to praise Him. You just need to rejoice in the good that He has done for you. Oh, how He loves you and me. Oh, how He loves you and me. He gave His life. What more could He? Oh, how He loves you. Oh, how He loves me. Oh, how He loves you and me. Father God, we thank You for Your love. We thank You that uh, it is a love that existed in relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You have always loved intimately. You have always poured yourself out in loving service, selflessly, to one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by your good creation, and then more importantly, by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, you have invited us into the experience of your love. And so, God, we ask today that you would deliver us from the idols that we derive our self-worth from, that we wouldn't settle for living beneath the level of our inheritance as Christ followers, but that we would embrace fully the love of God for us and that we would invite you to, to change everything in us that we might be defined by your love, that we might love our wives better, that we might love our husbands better, that we might love our children and lead them toward a love relationship with you and especially, Father, in the church, that we might be characterized as your people by the love of God, that we might love the unlovely as you have loved us. Father, we thank you today for your love for us and we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.